Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening to us today. How you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good today, actually, Sarah. Yeah, it's like a gorgeous day outside. Mm -hmm. It's like the first Saturday of August. I guess it is, yeah. Sure is, yeah. What are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Mummy's Ghost. From 1944, and this is the third movie in the Karis the Mummy series produced by Universal, the fourth Universal Mummy movie overall. Mm-hmm. I do, I do wonder like what a mummy's ghost is, because like a mummy's already undead. If Universal put any kind of research or uh, fact-checking into any of their movies, mm-hmm. I would be like, ah, well, the mummy's ghost is probably the soul that departs from the person. Right. And, like, that goes to be judged, and, like, why the body needs to be kept from decomposing. Right, because what's left is, otherwise, there's just, like, the animating sort of principle. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about all this once upon a time. I I feel like none of the Karis movies have had titles that really, like, make any sense. <laughs> like, the first one was The Mummy's Hand, and, the like, that's just... It's just a generic title. That, like, there's nothing particular about his hand. And then... Well, he does strangling, I guess? I guess. And then the next one was The Mummy's Tomb, and it's like... I mean, he does come out of a tomb, but that's not, like, in any way specific to this particular movie. And then, like, this one... So this one being called The Mummy's Ghost, like, I don't anticipate it to have any significance on the plot of the movie whatsoever, given, like, (laughs) the last two movies having just titles that were clearly just The Mummies, and then they open up, like, a dictionary and point to a noun, you know? Sure. But, yeah, so this is our our sort of fourth time around with uh, Mummies. So let's maybe have a brief... Recap of how we got to this point. Let me take you way back, uh, about 12 years, to the 1932 Mummy. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is directed by Carl Freund and stars Karloff as our Mummy. Um, So that's episode 35, if you want to take a listen. It's currently ranked number 70 on the list. Yeah, for a while it was kind of our delineating factor between a good and a bad movie. It was like, was it above or below The Mummy? I feel like that's changed <laughs> since then. It's changed, um, and it's more about the fact that we found The Mummy boring. Yes. Um, now, this is kind of a different mummy film from the Chorus films because it has, because The Mummy is named Imhotep and has the whole story of the scrolls being read by that archaeologist in the kind of opening, um, that bringing Imhotep back to life, and his long-lost love being reincarnated in this Egyptian woman that he then goes after. Right. The title of that episode is Egyptian Dracula, because they were, makers of the movie were really trying to, like, cash in on the Dracula trend. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would kind of put this movie in the gothic 
subgenre of horror. Yeah, it's... You know, dark, spooky, but not a lot of stuff happens. Desert gothic. Desert gothic. There we go. Eight years after that, we had The Mummy's Hand, directed by Christy Caban. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that introduces Karis, our mummy, but also the idea of tana leaves. Right. Which, so this comes from nowhere. <laughs> There's nothing in, like, uh, the Egyptian history or myth or anything like that around mummies, around the afterlife, that has anything to do with leaves, but specifically tana leaves. Yeah, these are just made up. Yeah. They're dilithium crystals. They're they're nonsense. For sure. Um, so in this one, Karis the mummy is brought back to life by the priest Andoheb, played by George Zuko. Mm-hmm. Um, the mummy is kept alive in kind of a catatonic state by having a little bit of some of this, like, tea leaf juice mm-hmm. every so often. But if you give him, like, too much, he goes on a rampage. Um, and he also has this craving for this juice, so he will seek out whoever has the juice. I think it is just tea. Like, leaf juice is tea. Well, it depends if it's, like, you brew it with whatever. But the visuals of it is white, which makes me think of, like, you know the insides of dandelions when you pick right. them and you squeeze the yeah, yeah, juice yeah. out? That's what it... Like, the syrup? Listen, I don't think they really thought this through. <laughs> it just showed up better on black and white film. Um, anyways, that's what the mummy's after, and, uh, Andoheb has his minions place the juice on our adventurers, played by Dick Fran, Wallace Ford, and Peggy Moran. Mm-hmm. Now this film, The Mummy's Hand, it's episode 78, and it's currently ranked 87, and it's definitely more in the adventure genre. Like, it, it, there's horror in it, so that's why it's on the list, but it's definitely, like, that step towards adventure yeah. that we see in, like, the 1999 Mummy. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And in this one, Karis has kind of the same backstory as Imhotep, so they can use, like, stock footage. Yeah, they reuse the stock footage, footage. But the names are changed, and... And there's no reincarnation. There's just this, like, mummy of the princess, Ananka... And that's what, like, the adventurers are after, is, like, her mummy to bring it back to, like, a museum and whatever. But they don't find it. No. Like, they, like that that's just, like, the thing that sets them on their quest. Right, but Karis's job is to, like, stop them from getting it. Like, that's what the high priests are all about. Yeah. Yeah. So there's not really... It, it's really, like, an in-name-only type of sequel to the 32 mummy. It's like a reboot. <laughs> Basically. Um, especially with, like... You know, it's unique. It's a reboot in the sense that they have a whole new mummy and all of that. But it's also a bit of a sequel because we reuse the footage. Mm-hmm. You know, to me that makes it have a strong tie to the past one. It, it would be like if in Batman Begins, when they did the flashback to Bruce Wayne's parents getting killed, they just used the version of his parents getting killed from the Tim Burton movie. Sure. Yeah. Now, a proper sequel follows The Mummy's Hand with The Mummy's Tomb. It is directed by Harold Young. It's episode 95, and it's ranked at 54. Oh, so that's our highest-ranking mummy movie. So far, yeah. We'll see how The Mummy's Ghost does. So again, this follows Karis, The Mummy. Um, And what's neat is we're basically following up on Dick Fran and Wallace Ford, 
uh, I want to say like 20 years later. We still get stock footage, like a full reel of stock footage in the beginning, so if you didn't see the past Mummy movie, now you have it. But um, the kind of premise is that George Zuko as priest Anderheb is passing on the like priestly duties to Turhan Bey, playing Mehmet Bey, um, and then Zuko dies after <laughs> passing on the duties. And basically the idea is for Mehmet Bey to take the mummy to America to hunt down the people who have gotten rich off of their Egyptian discoveries, specifically Dick Fran and Wallace Ford. Um, so it has kind of like a proto-slasher vibe to it. The ending of the film has Karis getting trapped in a house as it burns up, mm-hmm. and um, our breeding pair, John Banning and Isabel Evans, uh, escaping, getting married, and having, like, a honeymoon night before John Banning gets shipped off to fight in World War II. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mohammed Bey also is killed in, like, a mob. So our two baddies are killed. Yes. Uh, so I don't know how much of a sequel. <laughs> I mean, it's universal. They'll find a way. Oh, for sure. Um, but those are the past Mummy movies. Uh, so I'm really curious what The Mummy's Ghost is going to be like. It's now two years later. So the thing about these Karis movies is, like, we've we've only had two of them, to be fair. But they're very formulaic. Yes. Like, even though the second one moved the setting to America and had Karis, like, chasing people through this small town, it still followed this, like, basic um, structure of, like, in both movies, the old high priest of Karnak is old and dying and, like, passes the job on to the younger one. It's just George Zuko's the younger one in the first one and he's the older one in the second one. And then the high priest and Karis go after the heroes to stop them from, like, getting the mummy of Ananka or whatever. And then at some point, the high priest decides he's got, like, a mad hard-on for, like, the lead female character and changes Karis's mission to kidnap me, the lead female character, so I can bone down. And then for his troubles, Karis gets moited, uh, as does the high priest. Yeah, so that's definitely what happens in The Mummy's Hand. In The Mummy's Tomb, I feel like they are able to justify it a little bit better because um, Isabel Evans, who is played by Elise Knox, is closer in age to Turhan Bey, so it's a bit easier to buy like him being like, ah, no, I want to like bone down with her, rather than George Zuko, who at this time... like, Yeah, is in his 50s. Is in his 50s, going after a 20-year-old, like... Yes, I know Hollywood, but it also just seems to come out of nowhere in terms of the plot. Sure. Now, the other thing that kind of makes The Mummy's Tomb a bit of a proto-slasher is because we follow the police trying to solve what's going on. Mm-hmm. The son of Dick Fran's character is trying to help the police put the pieces together, um, and kind of the only thing that's left at the scene of the crime is, like, this moldy dust yes. from the mummy, but also, like, they do find some, like, rags... That's like, these rags are from Egypt and also 10,000 years old. Like, how did they get here in Massachusetts? Yeah. And and I think, like, the other thing about the proto-slash revive was, like, there was literally a scene where Karis walks by some teenagers, like, necking in a car. Yeah, Who, like, get freaked great. out. Oh, and walking. Yeah, it's a great movie. It, um, it definitely has cinematography that makes it more into a, a horror genre than um, The Mummy's Hand. Right. I would say. Um, and that's probably why it ranks so high. Now, of course, 
what this kind of shows us is that Universal is like not afraid to be retconning their series as they go. Like, and to have George Zuko get shot at the end of the mummy's hand. And then he's back at the start of mummy's tomb being like, ah, I lived actually. And now I'm old. Um, like (laughs) dying from old age. Yes. Yeah, he exactly. (laughs) So there are no strangers to retcons here. Um, so mummy's ghost like mummy's hand and mummy's tomb was produced by Ben Piver, who was universal's like B movie producer. Uh, the script for the mummy's ghost is by Griffin J who wrote the mummy's hand the Mummy's Tomb, Captive Wild Woman, and Return of the Vampire. Okay. Um, assisting Griffin J uh, is Henry Suker, who wrote The Mummy's Tomb and Captive Wild Woman and Jungle Woman, and Brendo Weisberg, who wrote The Mad Ghoul. Okay, so people we have talked about before. Yeah, I mean, basically, it's it's the guys who wrote the first two movies, and they're just being joined by this, you know, third writer now. As we've said, the last movie ended with Karis burning up in a house in Mapleton, Massachusetts. Uh, And this movie picks up with the character of Professor Norman, who is a minor character in the last movie, who was given the mummy dust that Sarah mentioned to analyze, and that's how they figure out, oh, it's a mummy. Um, In this movie, this is sort of retconned to him having been given, like, a supply of Tana leaves, uh, which will, of course, then enable Karis' resurrection. Speaking of Karis, uh, the role here is played for the second time by Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, in The Mummy's Hand, Karis was Tom Tyler, but for Mummy's Tomb, it was, you know, newly crowned king of universal horror, Lon Chaney. <laughs> um, Chaney hated the full body makeup he had to do for the role of Karis, uh, hated the fact that it was like a non-speaking role, uh, hated the lengthy time in the makeup chair that it took. Uh, and he also hated how itchy the costume was. But he also insisted on playing Karis in every shot that Karis appears in, uh, instead of, like, using doubles for shots where, like, they could have used a double. So the last time we saw Chaney was in Son of Dracula. Yeah, where he, he was... All right, yeah. Since then, he has appeared as the lead in the first two Inner Sanctum mystery movies, Calling Dr. Death and Weird Woman. He also has appeared in the Technicolor adventure movie Cobra Woman, as well as the horror comedy The Ghost Catchers. So, uh, last time, the High Priest of Karnak was played by Turkish actor Turhan Bey, the first non-white actor to play an Egyptian in one of these things. That trend does not continue here, as the new High Priest for this movie is played by... The man, the myth, the legend, John Carradine, uh, who we, of course, have been seeing a lot of lately. Yes. Our romantic lead for this film is played by Robert Lowry. Born in 1913 in Kansas City, his father was an attorney and his mother was a concert pianist. After graduating high school, he sung in an orchestra and played minor league baseball. After his father died in 1935, he and his mother moved to Los Angeles and he signed to 20th Century Fox in 1937 after attending acting school. His athletic build got him roles in action movies, with minor parts in pictures like 1940's The Mark of Zorro. In 1949, he would be the second actor to play Batman in live action for the second Batman serial, Batman and Robin. 
He passed away in 1971 of heart failure. So the film's female lead was initially intended to be played by Aquanetta. Oh. But on her first day of shooting, uh, she fell onto some rocks that she thought were papier-mâché, but were in fact real, and she suffered a concussion and had to be hospitalized. And Universal was unwilling to delay production, so they recast her with actress and pinup model Ramsey Ames. Ames was born in Brooklyn in 1919 to English and Spanish parents, and was a talented swimmer, dancer, and singer, doing Latin-style dance and singing, uh, sort of taking advantage of the popularity of Latin American culture in the early 1940s. On a plane trip to visit her mother, she had a chance meeting with Columbia President Harry Cohn, and that led to movie roles. It was said that Republic Pictures' stuntmen suffered more injuries in the 1940s, running across rooftops to get a look at Ames walking across the back lot than they ever did on set. That doesn't sound real. She married Dale Wasserman, who was the writer of the um, stage production Man of La Mancha, uh, and she passed away in 1998 of lung cancer. In the role of sort of the film's tough policeman character uh, is Barton McLean, who was very well known for tough cop roles to the point where there was a saying in the 1940s, don't give me no Barton McLean, meaning like basically it was something that people would tell cops, like don't give me a hard time. Uh, He was born in South Carolina in 1902. And he got his first movie role in 1926's The Quarterback due to his football career. He then transitioned from football to acting. And he had appeared in, like, hundreds of movies by this point. Uh, He's just one of those, like, sort of stereotyped character actors. Uh, We've seen him in The Walking Dead. He was also in the Torchy Blaine movies. He was in the 1941 Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, he did a lot of movies with Humphrey Bogart. He did High Sierra. He was in the Maltese Falcon. And he was also in Treasure of Sierra Madre. Returning from the previous two movies is George Zuko as he- High Priest Andeheb, despite being shot to death in the mummy's hand and then dying of old age on camera in the mummy's tomb. He's escaped death twice now. Maybe he's dabbling in the town of leaves. I guess, like, someone has to give John Carradine a job, and Turan Bay is dead. So, I (laughs) guess... Yeah, but Zuko's dead. Yeah. Zuko's a bigger name than Turan Bay in the horror genre. Because as we've kind of talked about, Turan Bay's kind of establishing himself in, like, the adventure and, like... Romance. Yeah, romantic kind of Yeah, he probably wouldn't want to come back. And it's like... Zuko's a better name for horror, but also probably cheaper to get than Turan Bay. In the role of Professor Norman, returning from The Mummy's Tomb, uh, we have actor Frank Riker. I'm sure we've had this before, but like, I feel like a very minor character returning to be the thing that like the sequel is based around is like a very common horror movie series kind of trope, especially once you get to like you know, slasher movies where it's like, well, everyone, everyone else is dead. dead. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Frank Riker was born in Munich in 1875, and he immigrated to the U.S. in 1899, 
Uh, he became an actor initially on Broadway and in 1915 in film. He's probably best remembered today as Captain Englehorn in the original 1933 version of King Kong. Okay. Uh, but we've also seen him in The Invisible Ray, The Devil Doll, Dr. Cyclops, Night Monster, and of course The Mummy's Tomb. Mainly in small roles? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, nice. Uh, I guess, you know, he, he gets to be the bride instead of the bridesmaid, you right. know? Unfortunately, by 1944, Lon Chaney's drinking problem mm. was becoming more and more difficult to work around. Uh, in particular, it caused multiple problems on the set of The Mummy's Ghost, such as an incident where he smashed his fist through a pane of real glass instead of the breakaway glass right next to it that he was supposed to, causing shards of glass to fly into his face and cut him, resulting in him really bleeding in the shot in the movie. <laughs> wow. So, like, okay. Another incident involved Cheney misjudging uh, a scene where Karis attacks Professor Norman, and he nearly choked actor Frank Riker to death. Uh, Cheney had his back to the camera, so the crew couldn't see Riker's face, and it wasn't until he managed to yell out, he's killing me, that cut was called, and Cheney was escorted off set. And this is kind of what would happen when Cheney would get super drunk. He would get violent without kind of realizing how violent he was being, uh, kind of letting his strength get carried away. The size of him. Um, yes, exactly. It would always end up with, like, fights with people on the Universal set and, like, people, like, having to go see, like, the set nurse and stuff. Like, yeah. Uh, directing the movie is our pal Reginald LeBorg, who we first ran into directing Junk Woman. LeBorg convinced producer Ben Piver into filming some prologue scenes explaining how Karis came back to life instead of just having him wander back into the movie with no comment, uh, and he also talked to the producer into taking a chance on a darker ending than what Universal normally went for at this time. Oh, interesting. I'm quite curious about this film, because as we've seen with all of the previous Mummy movies, Universal doesn't really have a set genre for it, if mm -hmm. you know what I mean, one of the subgenres. Because, like, the first one was gothic, second one was adventure, third one was, like, slasher, basically, mm -hmm. without them knowing what slasher is, I guess. So, I'm really curious, like, what exactly is The Mummy's Ghost going to be like? Is it going to be back to gothic, like, mm -hmm. with how The Uninvited kind of was? Because that's the only other ghost movie that's fairly recent, you know? I, I am going to be immensely impressed if there is actually a ghost in this movie. <laughs> So The Mummy's Ghost was released on July 7th, 1944. Critics complained that the series was repeating itself and had run out of ideas, uh, but the movie did well enough with audiences to lead to Universal commissioning a immediate sequel that would come out later in 1944. Oh, which is? The Mummy's Curse. That has some, like, meta meaning to it, doesn't it? <laughs> So how are we watching this? Well, today The Mummy's Ghost is available as part of the Mummy Legacy Collection on DVD and Blu-ray, and you can also see it online through Google Play and YouTube. Great. Well, that means that it is on our YouTube playlist, which you can find at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. 
Go take a look, watch along, and in the meantime, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back to discuss The Mummy's Ghost from 1944, directed by Reginald LeBorg. See you on the other side, everybody. To Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Mummy's Ghost from 1944, directed by Reginald LeBorg. So, how was that, Sarah? Oh, I'm so tired of movies where nothing happens. Fair. Yep. Fair. Yep. What did you think? What are your first thoughts? You know, there are arguments to be made that this is the worst mummy movie yet. I would also accept arguments to be made that this is the best Mummy movie yet. And, yeah, I guess I'll just, I'll get into that later, but... Yeah, I, uh, I'm curious where that's coming from. (laughs) So, if you've seen The Mummy's Tomb, you've seen this movie, basically. There are a few differences that I will elucidate as we go, Uh, but this movie starts with... Yusuf Bey, played by John Carradine, meeting up with still-living High Priest Andahab in... It's like a hundred years old by this point. Uh, in the Temples of Archon. Uh, in all the previous movies, they are the Temples of Karnak, which was a city in ancient Egypt. And they've just decided to change it to Arkan now, for reasons. Uh, and the retcons don't stop there, folks. <laughs> And to have explains the backstory of the previous movies. Uh, and he's actually tag-teaming this explanation with Professor Norman, because the movie actually cuts between And to have explaining it to Yusuf Bey and Professor Norman explaining it to his, like, college class. Which was, I will say I really was interested in the idea that, like, this movie doesn't pretend the previous movie didn't happen. So this is, like, a normal-ass American town where it's like, there was a mummy that came back to life, and town of leaves make you immortal. We just really don't understand how, so that's why we aren't doing it. And also, the town of plant is extinct or whatever. And, like, one of the students is like, maybe it was just some guy dressed as a mummy. And the professor's (laughs) like, yo, this whole fucking town saw it, so I don't know if you want to, like, step to someone in this town, but, like, (laughs) it was definitely a mummy. In this version of the backstory, Karis had, like a forbidden love for Ananka, the princess. So he's not just, like, the guard of her tomb as punishment for, like, experimenting with the Tana leaves or whatever. It's, they've they've taken more of the backstory from the original mummy and put it into this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Andahab gives Yusuf Bey the job to head over to America, get Karis back, uh, because he's still alive, which Andahab knows because... Amun-Ra has shown it to him in a vision or whatever. And then for Yusuf Bey to use Karis to get Ananka back and come back to Egypt. Meanwhile, Professor Norman is experimenting with the uh, Tana leaves that he was not given in the previous movie. And he manages to 
decode the final hieroglyphic that was eluding him that it's nine leaves you need to brew. So he brews up nine leaves. Karis likes his tea strong. Right. And Karis just sort of emerges from the trees. No <laughs> real like explanation of where he's been since the Banning House burned down around him like a couple years ago. Yeah, I feel like if this movie was made now, it would just be like you see the dust coming together, like mm-hmm. he's being reformed or sure. something. So he is drawn by the Tana leaves to Professor Norman's place. And then he strangles him to death. At the same time as this is kind of happening, in Professor Norman's class, he has this student whose name is Tom. And Tom's played by Robert Lowry. His last name's Hervey. Yeah, Tom Hervey. And so Tom's a bit of a jerk, but he has a girlfriend, uh, Amina, uh, who's played by Ramsey Ames. And Ami- Not to be confused with just plain Mina from Dracula. Fair. So Amina is uh, Egyptian. She's Egyptian-American. And because of this, I guess she gets real upset whenever Tom talks to her about like his Egyptology classes. Which, like, the movie tries to play off as, like, there's just something about her that, like, senses the, like inhuman supernatural magics at force, because we're going to find out later that Amina is the reincarnation of Ananka, because this movie has taken the reincarnation angle from the original Mummy movie and brought it to the Karis series. Mm-hmm. But I could also see a world where, like, this guy who's taking Egyptology in university and dating an Egyptian, like, yeah. just comes off bad, and, like, he comes home and he's like, so in Egyptology today, like, we learned about, like, Isis and stuff. So, like, hey, do you know, do you know Isis stuff because you're an Egyptian? She'd be like, no, Tom, like, we've been Muslim for, like, a thousand years, like, <laughs> 1,500 years. Like, no, I don't know anything about fucking Isis. So when Karis gets awoken and goes to kill Norman, Amina gets woken up in the middle of the night and, well, not really woken up, she sleepwalks in a trance to Professor Norman's house to where Karis is and then sees Karis while she's sleepwalking which okay and uh, she faints so the next morning when the cops find dead Professor Norman and Amina passed out outside it doesn't look good for Amina except this movie remembers the last movie happened so the sheriff like looks at the wounds on Professor Norman and he's like ah the mummy (laughs) He's back. And ready for action. So the town, you know, is now on full mummy alert. (laughs) And uh, Tom's like, can I just take Amina out of here? Can I take her out of town? And the sheriff's like, no, you can't take her out of town. She's a fucking suspect. Like, even if she didn't kill the professor, she has no clue how she ended up outside his house the night he died. That's suspicious as heck. Like, no, you cannot. And Tom's kind of a real jerk about it. Yusuf Bay arrives in Mapleton, Massachusetts. Mapleton. And he brews his Tana leaves and calls Karis to him. And it's like, cool. Uh, we've got. Step one done. Right. Check. And while Karis is on the way to Yusuf, Yusuf Bay, uh, he passes by Amina and Tom in their car at like makeout point or whatever. And spooks them uh, out of their makeout attempt. Spooks Amina. Right. And Tom is like, 
Why are you scared? Yeah. Everything's fine. It's been a month since the death. I don't know what the big deal is. Yeah. So, um, the thing about Tom is that he's just a little too protective of Amina. Like, it's the kind of thing where, like, he knows better than the cops because she's his girlfriend kind of thing. Like, anyways. The d- significant thing here is, like, we had the teenagers in the car getting spooked in the last movie. Uh, it's the third time we've seen this trope overall. It's the first time that it's been lead characters mm-hmm. who are the ones getting threatened in their car while they're trying to make out. So the other thing about Amina is that after her sort of experience with Karis, she's now got like a skunk stripe down her hair. Like Cruella de Vil. Right. You know? The Bride of Frankenstein. Yeah, that's more apt. Um, Like, they make a big deal of showing you that Tom notices it, but he definitely never brings it up. And we don't see Amina react to it. No. No, nobody ever fucking mentions it. So... With Karis under his control, Yusuf and Karis leave Mapleton uh, to wherever the Scripps Museum is. It's, it's nearby, but it's not in town. And the Scripps Museum is where all the shit that Banning brought back from Egypt is, including uh, the mummy of Ananka. So Yusuf and Karis break in in the middle of the night to get the mummy of Ananka. And just as Karis is going to, like, pick up the body... It, like, crumbles into dust, and there's just the wrappings. And Yusuf and Karis are like, what the fuck? And it's because the soul of Ananka has moved from in her body, which is where it was when she was dead, which, that doesn't make any (laughs) fun. I don't think that's how death works. No, it's not. Uh, And has now, like, does your soul just sit around in your dead body for thousands of years? Like, that sounds like a, that's, anyways. And it has moved into a new receptacle, which is her reincarnation, Amina, who now has two stripes in her hair. And so they're like, okay, now we got to go get Amina and bring her back to the tombs of Archon. And I guess the plan is to kill her so that they can just wrap her back up in some mummy bandages and put her back in her tomb. Makes it easy to transport, I suppose. Well, it's just like that's... Trying to explain this kidnapped girl to customs. (laughs) No, I just like like the dedication to the the job, right? Like, we're the priests of Arkan, so our job is to guard the tomb of Ananka. We They're, fucked up with that job. Sure, sure, sure. Like, the body got moved. Okay, we need to get the body back. That makes sense. But then it's like, if Ananka gets brought back to life, there can't be a tomb. So I guess that makes us all out of a job. So we have to kill her <laughs> so there's a tomb again. Like, that seems to be the logic here. <laughs> the mummy's ghost, colon, job security. Right. <laughs> So, with the Scripps Museum uh, having been broken into, this brings us uh, the character of Inspector Walgreen, who's like a big city detective who has to solve, like, who stole this mummy body? And it's like, well, it's kind of weird that no one stole the body. The body just literally vanished. Um, So he figures he's going to head to Mapleton, because that's, you know, mummy central. (laughs) And uh, he brings along, like, a professor from the museum, And working with the sheriff back in Mapleton, they concoct an elaborate scheme to trap the mummy involving brewing more tana leaves at Professor Norman's house and then, like, on the lawn between Professor Norman's, like, sliding screen doors for the backyard and the, like, street 
just digging a 10-foot pit and covering up with leaves to trap like, the mummy. Scooby-Doo style. Like, it is great. Like, <laughs> I love that... Freddy would be very proud. I love that, like, the sheriff, you know, like, he's like, why are we digging a pit? And the inspector's like, well, you told me, like, bullets don't work. So having him fall into a pit at least traps him for a while till we figure out how you do kill him. <laughs> None of that ends up mattering at all. Yeah. Uh, and the entire inspector character ends up being completely superfluous. Um, because when they brew their nine tana leaves in their attempt to lure the mummy away, he's out on his mission for Yusuf Bey kidnapping Amina. And so, you know... He's busy with that. Yeah. Don't got time for tea. So he brings back Amina to where Yusuf has got their base set up, which is like in a... a mine? Sh- it's in a shack... At the top of a ramp, it's like a scaffold tower with a wood shack on top of it. And then there's like a, uh, like a rails, like minecart rails that go up a ramp to the shack. And then there's some like weird sort of scaffold structure around them. He brings Amina to Yusuf Bay, and Yusuf gets a look at her and he goes, Damn! I think I'm going to give us both ton leaves and become immortal and we'll marry each other. And, and Carson's, Carson's like, like not what the fuck? Again? Yeah. Like every time. Every time. So he picks up Yusuf and just throws him off the fucking tower. We're done here. So then I really don't know what Karis is doing. He grabs Amina, who's now got all white hair, and just starts leaving with her. Meanwhile, uh, Tom and... The sheriff and the inspector and the angry mob from the town Mm -hmm. have been able to track Amina to this location thanks to Tom's dog, Peanut, who was tasked with guarding Amina in the night. And did a terrible job. Yes, and is now just leading everyone to cars with... uh, Constant barking. Constant yapping. It's a a yap. That's... It's a very small dog. Yeah. So... Yap, yap, yap. Exactly. So they follow (laughs) Karis into the woods... And I have no idea what Karis is trying to do I at this point. Know. Like, Karis is Swim in... Swim back to Egypt? I, Karis is in love with um, Ananka. And Amina is the reincarnation of Ananka. And Yusuf's dead. There's no high priest to order him around. Like, are, are, Is he just going to find a private place to bone? Right. Like, what is the heck? As a big crusty mummy? Or yeah, the only other thing I can think of is like, we've been shown that Karis is like very single-minded. Like, if he is has to go to a place, he will take a straight line and just walk through walls, you know, and bust down gates and fences to get there. So I do think also the idea that he might just think he's going to walk back to Egypt with her is not, like, totally out of the question. Yeah. So they're following him into the wilderness, and they come across a swamp, and Karis, who's holding Amina, who now is, like, all old, too, she's, like, rapid aging, just walks into the water. Bye. And, you know... I presume that kills Amina because people can't breathe well, she was underwater. Aging. Yeah, but like she's dead is what I'm. They they don't rescue the girl is what I'm trying to say. They fail at that, and then the monster dies and she dies. The end. Yeah, we do get a shot of Tom trying to get into the swamp. Someone being like, "No, Tom, it's certain death," and it's like. Why? There's no gators in Massachusetts like, in the swamps yeah. of Massachusetts. And he does get a look of Mina's, like, uh, mummy face. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, no. Yeah. She's old. Oh, no. I'm not a fan of this movie. 
and you started this whole thing by saying that it's either the worst or the best movie. So I know how it's the worst, but how is it the best? Okay, so here's my case. Okay. On the one hand, this is the worst Mummy movie because it's literally just the last Mummy movie again, but with the reincarnation thing from the first one put into it. And they don't kill George Zuko this time so that he can show up in more sequels because <laughs> they finally learned their lesson on that one. Uh, and the girl dies at the end, right? Those yeah. are the only differences. So on the one hand, it's like, this is just a waste of time. Like, we've, we've been here, we've done that. Yeah. On the other hand, if you came to me and you were like, hey, what's the one mummy movie in the Universal Mummy movies I should see? I think I would not be wrong in saying this one. Because if you watch this one, you've then literally watched all of them. Because <laughs> it gives you the Karis the Mummy stuff, the Tomb of Ananka stuff, the Priests of Andahab, uh, or the the High Priests of Karnak, Andahab, the Tana Leaves, you know, murdering people, shuffling Lon Chaney, smashing through walls, and... The reincarnation thing from the first one, which was the only thing the Karis Mummy movies didn't have. So if you watch this one Mummy movie, that's it. You don't need to watch any of the others. It is the um, apotheosis of Universal Mummy movies. So on the one hand, it's so completely derivative, it's useless, or it's worthless. And on the other hand, it's so completely derivative that it's like a nice like one-stop shop for just getting all of the Mummy movies in 60 minutes. Oh, except that it's so boring. Like, and I think part of the reason why it's boring is basically because there's no agency with Amina. There's, there's Like, no, she's yeah. the linchpin mm -hmm. of this movie. And she doesn't do anything. Yeah, the only thing that she's given to do is be in a trance or faint or be unconscious. Yeah, she doesn't make any choices. She doesn't have opinions. This is the perfect example to show someone for the sexy lamp trope. Yeah, absolutely. But, like, a lot of people don't do anything in this movie. Like, like Tom, right, yeah. who's supposed to be our lead hero, like, he bitches and moans at people who want to make decisions about his girlfriend for him when he's the one who should be making decisions about his girlfriend for her. But, like, he doesn't really accomplish anything. No. Like, he follows the mummy around until the mummy kills his girlfriend in front of him. See, the thing is, is the one person who... It's ironic. The one person who appears to have agency is Karis, but even he doesn't have agency because he is bound to either the Tana leaves or the person making the Tana leaves. Karis even is just too slow to be scary. Right. Like, the only times that I found... Anything to do with cars interesting was when he was going hand-to-hand -hand with, like, the museum security guard. Yeah, I, I thought that was a good scene. I thought the scene where he kills Professor Norman was pretty good. Like, the thing that works in Karis's favor is that, you know, Lon Chaney's this big imposing guy in this, like, undead makeup. And if you can get someone in, like, an enclosed space, like a small room, he can, like, back you into a corner and then just, you know, take you out. This movie's problem is that it sets the climax, like, outdoors. Yeah. Carradine gets to make, like, a choice, sort of, because mm -hmm. we hear him have, like, at least this movie tries to justify why this, like, priest of Karnak... Arcan. Arcan is going for the girl is 
this movie has, like, an internal monologue we hear of Carradine saying, like, don't you think, like, it's wrong to kill this girl? Wouldn't it be better if you and her were immortal together? Let's do that. Um, But even up to that point, Carradine is tangential to the plot so as to be practically irrelevant if not just vestigial from the rest of the movie from the other movies well this is the thing like he like Karis is just working for yusuf bay and yusuf bay is just working for andahab and when yusuf bay does finally make a choice that is his own it still doesn't feel like his own because it's the same choice the last two fucking guys made. Is this the curse that they're going to be addressing in the next one? Is this the mummy's curse, Ben? Yeah, that all fucking high priests are destined to, to... want to bone at the worst time? Yeah, no one makes any choices or decisions. Like, the thing that frustrated me... So I like... One thing I really like about this movie is that everyone remembers the previous movie and yes. they act accordingly. Yes. Like, everyone's just immediately like, yep, it's the mummy, and the whole town takes it seriously right from jump. There's nobody going around being like, mummies don't exist, and you don't have to have Tom trying to convince the sheriff for 20 minutes. Like, I liked that. I liked that, like, I liked the inspector character who shows up from, like, the big city and has, like, good ideas. The problem is, he's ultimately pointless because his plan to trap Karis doesn't work, so... It's not even that it doesn't work. It just, like, doesn't happen. Yeah. Like, they set it all up and Karis doesn't just, doesn't go to it, right? Like, you could cut all of that out of the movie and it wouldn't change anything. You wouldn't notice it was gone. And he doesn't contribute to the monster's demise. No one contributes to the monster's demise. The monster walks into the swamp to die and, and with Amina. So, like, you could cut the entire Inspector character. It wouldn't make a difference. It's just very frustrating. I do appreciate that they were trying to go for a darker ending and that LeBorg was able to convince people to go for a darker ending because if this did end with Amina and Tom actually ending together, I would probably be more angry because Tom is so awful. Well, I... But, like... Also, it would just be then, at that point, exactly the same as the last movie. For sure. That being said, like, the darker ending doesn't feel exciting because of the reasons we've already kind of outlined. Yeah, it's just everyone watching. And I think the real problem is... is So I'm not making the case that this isn't horror. I think this is horror. Mm-hmm. But I think the film misses the point of where to capture the horror to make this even better. And that would be with Amina. Yeah, she should be our viewpoint character, because she's the one that the scary shit is happening to. Yeah, instead we're focusing around Tom, who, like... Is too dumb to be afraid. Yeah, and then the only other person is that we kind of follow is Karis and Carradine, and I've already kind of outlined why they aren't, like, super good at being, like, at conveying the horror yeah, to they're us. they're the bad guys. Or we follow the inspector who, like, just treats this like another day on the job. Like, ah, a mummy. <laughs> well, let's, uh, get a plan going, boys. Yeah, it, it's it's really frustrating. I mean, we've talked about this with previous movies, the mistake of, like, the sexism? Yeah, like, well... blinding them to what could be a really good movie. Or just, like, blinding them to the structure of how the fuck horror as a genre works, right? Like, your viewpoint character has to be the person who's threatened. That's what makes everything scary. So if you sideline them because they're the girl... Yeah, yeah. And she's the one transforming into, like, an old mummy lady. Yeah, instead, without her point of view and us sticking with Tom, the horror is, oh no, she's gotten old, she has gray hair. Well, this is the thing, is, like, 
the boldness of having the ending be like Karis walks her into the swamp and they die together and we didn't save the girl is really undercut by the fact that she's unconscious for all of it. Yes. Like, I forget how they knock her out or whatever. She just faints. Oh, yeah, she just faints. And then Karis brings her to um, Yusuf Bey, and she is straight up unconscious for the last 20 minutes of the movie. Like, the whole time she's with Yusuf and Karis, she's not awake. She's unconscious. She has, like, a little bit of consciousness for them to explain, like, you're the... Right. Reincarnation. Sure. This birthmark of yours shows it. Blah, blah, blah. But, like, yeah, so we never really... She never actually reacts to anything. Like, movies from the 40s are, are sexist and bad and sure, whatever. And, like, we've been ragging on Tom, but, like, we've had worse men in movies. Yeah. The thing is, we don't even get, like, Amina, like, giving us some good screams. You know what I mean? No. Because she's fucking unconscious. Like, if she had been conscious and getting walked into the swamp to die and, like, screaming in terror, that's some fucking horror at the end. This is just, like, so quiet and sedate. It's like, ah, she went in her sleep. Just like she <laughs> just like she would have wanted to. Like, And you can have quiet and sedate horror. We saw that in I Walked With a Zombie. Yes. But... This movie does not do that. <laughs> yeah, this isn't I Walked With a Zombie. The other thing about the ending that I think undercuts it, you know, again, although I do want to give it points. I want to give it points for being bold and killing the girl off and all that kind of stuff. But another thing that undercuts it is I don't understand what the fuck is happening. Yeah. Like, if we knew, like, why is Cars walking her into the swamp to die? Like, is it that he just thinks he's going to walk to Egypt? Is it that he's decided that, you know, both him and Ananka are, you know, horrific freaks of nature who, like, don't, who, you know, shouldn't exist? Like, is it is it the end of Bride of Frankenstein, right? Where, like, the Frankenstein's monster is like, we belong dead. Like, is it that? Is I don't know. Yeah. Is the swamp, is he going to meet up with the creature from the Black Lagoon and who's got, like, <laughs> some advanced medical techniques that'll cure Ananka? Like, I don't fucking know. <laughs> So it's just like it's like Wakanda under the water. Yeah, it's just completely inexplicable. So you're just watching it going, so why? Also, also, and I realize this is a nitpick, but give it to me. Mapleton has a mine and a swamp. Is it normal to be able to have mines in like a wetland area? I just feel it like depends what they're mining, you know? Like wetland areas tend to have oil. And stuff, so you would have, like, the grasshopper oil things, but, like, oil But they need mine carts. They have carts, right? Yeah, so clearly, like, it's some kind of mineral. Right. Whether that's coal or diamonds. You're not going to be able to dig tunnels under the swamp. That doesn't make sense to me. It's, like, close enough, too, that it's, like, next door to the mine. Yes, it's right there. It's not on the other side of town. Like, he walks from the mine to the swamp. So that doesn't make any fucking <laughs> Geologists sense. Geologists who listen to the show, drop us a line. Streamsingpodcast yeah, swamp- at gmail.com. Our swamps near two mines. Um, <laughs> near two mines. So yeah, also, just on a casting note, 31-year-old Robert Lowry and 25-year-old uh, Ramsey Ames playing college kids did not work for me. Like, this is a dude who is two years older than me, and I've been out of university for six years now. My God. Like... So it makes sense from, for the girl to be in. Like, just yeah, finishing. Yeah. Also, it seemed like she just worked on campus. Yeah. She was, like, at a job. We didn't... Yeah. 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 Okay. But he's, like... He... He's had to re- repeat classes, Ben. Yeah, no fucking kidding. <laughs> okay, so where would you like to rank this? So, I kind of ended up with a... 
bit of a large range. Okay. Um, so hopefully you'll be able to get me to narrow it. Cool. So I wanted to start with the possibility that maybe this was better than The Mummy's Tomb for kind of the reason that it is The Mummy's Tomb, but with more stuff. Like, it's just The Mummy's Tomb, but now we've got the reincarnation angle in there, and we have the darker ending. So if it's the same movie, but with more stuff, maybe it's better. Uh, Right above The Mummy's Tomb is Dracula's Daughter, which is just a bunch of half-baked ideas. Uh, Whereas, if anything, the ideas in The Mummy's Ghost are overbaked because we've baked them several times in a row now. <laughs> so I thought, well, it's definitely not as good as Murders in the Rue Morgue, though. That movie actually has scary parts. Yeah. So my ceiling is number 52, Murders in the Rue Morgue. So the highest I'd put this is 53. And then I made my way down. And down. And down. <laughs> and I got to Jungle Woman. At 86. Sure. <laughs> and I thought to myself, which is also original LeBorg film. Yeah. And I thought, this is better. And the reason why this is better, other than like, you know, the darker ending, is if there's one thing Mummy's Ghost does better than Mummy's Tomb or Jungle Woman, it doesn't waste my time on 10 fucking minutes of stock footage from the previous movie at the start of the film. Yes, there is some stock footage. But it's not like a solid ten minutes of it. So it's better than Jungle Woman. So that's that's my range. That is a huge range. Yeah, well, help me out, Sarah. Where sure. are you looking? Uh, well, luckily my range fits within your range. Okay. But I don't think you'll appreciate where I'm looking. Okay, well. So my floor was The Mummy's Hand. Okay, so you figured this was better than The Mummy's Hand? Yes. Um, and that's mainly because there's not as much running around, and this feels more firmly in horror versus The Mummy's Hand, which had kind of one foot in horror, one foot in adventure. Mm -hmm. It's kind of making that step. And then I went up to number 79, Spanish Dracula. Mm. And the thing about Spanish Dracula (laughs) is that... It's bad. it's, It's bad, and it kind of misses the point of what was so horrific about the original Dracula. Mm-hmm. And I think that this film, The Mummy's Ghost, kind of is so boring to kind of miss the point of what was horrific about even just The Mummy's Tomb, um, let alone the original Mummy. So that's my range, um, 79 to 87. So what do you think about this versus Jungle Woman? The only super interesting parts of Jungle Woman were the, like, water scenes, basically. Right, yeah. And if you compared that <laughs> with the water scenes here, I don't know, I think Jungle Woman does better. But if you want to look at the films holistically, I think Jungle Woman is probably still better because it's taking an idea and working to develop it. Mm. Whereas, as you've already said, The Mummy's Ghost just overbakes the idea. You know, it's it's done. Stick a fork in it. You can't do anything else. Like you're just you're overseasoning it. There's I'm going to be I'm going to be so fucking done when like the next movie is the same shit again because I'm guaranteeing you now it's going to be the same shit again. I, really I I've never not. I don't know that for sure, but I'm guaranteeing it. 
You know what? Okay, so I think we should go below Jungle Woman, above the mummy's hand. Okay. All right. So entering the list at number 87, The Mummy's Ghost, from 1944, directed by Reginald LeBorg. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to appeal or contest this or any other ranking, drop us a line through our ask box on our website, email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com, or reach out over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can find the show by subscribing to our RSS feed, and if you leave us a rating or a review, it really helps the show out. Another way you can help the show out is by letting a friend know about us, uh, whether that's through social media or in real life. And you can also really be a big help by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and becoming a patron. Uh, you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month, uh, and we will thank you on the show for that. Uh, or at $5 a month, you get access to weekly bonus audio, and at $10 a month, you get access to uh, written pieces that I put up, uh, which currently are uh, like original horror short stories. Um, there's like a serial that I'm putting out right now, uh, sort of installment by installment. Uh, so if any of that sounds interesting to you, head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are heading over to Columbia Pictures. Okay. For Cry of the Werewolf. Hmm. It's like a follow-up to Return of the Vampire, not in the sense of being a sequel, but like if Return of the Vampire was Columbia's like copyright-free Dracula, uh, this is the copyright-free werewolf movie. So, yeah, we'll see how this is. Interesting. We really liked Return of the Vampire. We did. Yeah. All right, well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.